We're in Colossians, so let's have a gospel uh, message. Okay, gospel message, here we go. There's a God. Uh, There's a God, and he's a holy God, and some of the stuff you've done in your life makes you not right with him, so you need to repent of your sins, and God can come in and heal you and change your life. End of sermon. In my, in, my head, in, my, in my head, I was going to sit down for two minutes, but that was so awkward, I couldn't sit down there any longer. It's probably, I mean, you, let's just dissect that message, actually. I think it's a pretty good message. I think it's spawn. Um, probably be, what you're thinking is probably a bit short. Like, I've got stuff going on in my life. Ash, I've come half an hour down the road. And, you know, there's, there's more to the story of Colossians uh, than just that. But uh, think about this. If you are... Let's say you're on the Titanic. You know that bit where the bit in the middle breaks and the, is it the hole shoots up into the air and you're up there then, hanging on for dear life, knowing that in five minutes you're going to be a frozen corpse? I reckon, I reckon that's a pretty solid gospel message, right? And I don't think you want to hear one of mine or Paul's amble introductions or some cultural context in that circumstance. I think you want it straight there. The gospel message is ever the same but sometimes the present circumstances benefit from some specific points of emphasis. The, the story of the gospel will never change, but sometimes there are things that you want to really press home in the moment. So we're going to do a little bit of a history of British slash English Christianity, because the circumstances throughout the UK, throughout these fair isles, have changed over the time. So Christianity came over, Probably some contention about this second or third century, something like that. And right at, see, right at the start, this lovely, democratized, handsome bunch I see in front of me now that represents Great Britain, we were not like this. We were, what's the word? We were pagans. We drank the blood of the dead. We, we had druids making magic potions and this kind of stuff. The people to whom who received the first message of the gospel when St. Patrick came over and St. Columba and people like this, they, they knew nothing of God, of his son, of the spirit, about God's word, about his church. It was all new. Now, if you read about this stuff, there's some, digging around in the week, there's some, there's some really tragic stories about the first um, evangelists to Great Britain. There's some really funny ones. I thought, should I go tragic? Should I go funny? I thought, I'll go funny to get everybody with me at the start. So uh, St. Augustine, he, he was one of the best ones. He was one of the best evangelists. He was one that had the most success. But he went on one particular missionary journey. And this is how I think it's the Venerable Bede, who's a historian, reports it. He said he went to this little town. And as he entered it, he was jeered and poked fun at. And eventually, the pagans pinned him down and pinned fish into his back. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? When it, you know, it, when, whenever you think, so this brought me some comfort actually. I thought whenever I think I'm having a bad day as a Christian, nobody's ever pinned, nobody's ever jeered me really. I've had a few jeers. But nobody's ever pinned me down and put fish into my back. I was trying to think of this guy as he walks back home to his little monastery 
and uh, you know, the guys back at the monastery are like, so how, how did it go? Augustine, what, you know, what happened? And he just turns around and he's like, well, I don't know, you tell me how it went. You know, this is, it was a tough break, but they, kind of, they were kind of like missionary monks, tell, starting again with everything, telling them who God is, you know, and explaining it all from the start because the circumstances dictated so. They knew nothing, these people. So they'd set up these little monasteries, they'd have these little communities, and they'd be observed, they'd go out into the sticks, but it was all new ground. It would change about 600. 600 AD, it would change a little bit. State-sponsored Christianity. So Pope Gregory saw a few Anglo-Saxons, so the story goes, and he was like, we should, there's that, there's that. We were just, in these days, we were still pagans, we were still just this, this nation of people on the edge of the known world. And he's like, I'm going to reach these people. So Christianity, from sort of this point up, it changed around a little bit. So at the start, it was more bottom-up. It was more brave souls like St. Patrick and St. Augustine getting beaten up and going out into the world, but going around. But then after that, and you'll notice the change historically, about 600 it starts, it comes top down because it's state-sponsored by Rome and some of our leaders get it. I think it was King Ethelred, one of the king of Kent, something like that, he got baptized. And on the, on the back of him, or that's kind of the starting point, other leaders of our nation adopted the Christian faith. And it becomes more a top-down situation. Christianity is more, it's like what we do as a nation. It's more prescribed. It's less preached. It's more like, this is what we do. The leaders have adopted it, and you should adopt it too. And you'll know your history books, and you'll know how this story panned out. It didn't pan out particularly great. It was kind of a bit abused. Religion, state, all got mixed up together. If you wanted God, so you got to know a little bit about God, you needed the church. You needed the state because they monopolized the word. It was all in Latin, and that was abused a little bit. And the circumstances of the culture demanded a change, and they got a change. I mean, there's probably changes along the way, but it took a few hundred years, but God's Spirit moved across Europe, and we got Luther's revolution. We got, I don't know, Martin Luther reading away in his attic, reading away at these scriptures, realizing that there's more to this story than just things that you can work towards. And as God would have it, the printing press is, is invented around the same sort of time, and all of a sudden, the whole world's, the whole world, many people in, across Britain have got access to the Bible, and you've got this new message of grace. And all of a sudden, the message changes again. Because Luther, and people who listen to Luther, are now preaching the idea that we need to know God. This is a God that we need to know, and we need to know for ourselves. So we need to know the word for ourselves, and we need to know how to live through the Son, and the church becomes about helping, helping us do that. So these central pillars of what faith is change. They don't change. They are differently explained as you go throughout time. And this was kind of the scene of Christianity in our country at this time. It's, a, it's like a known story. Like the kings have embraced it, we've embraced it nationally, we own it, and we increasingly know it as people. Increasingly we've got Bibles in our houses, increasingly we know the stories of the Bible, increasingly we know this. So preaching God's word, and when you think about preachers like, so this is a bit of a history lesson, it's nearly finished, stick with me. Preachers like uh, Wesley and Whitley, you know the Methodist revival, they would go about, and when they used to preach, when they needed to talk about God and the Son and the Spirit and the Word, what they would kind of have to do would, would go, 
you, you know this. You know about God. It would be, it would, you'd go around and they'd just have to rouse you up. Revivalist preaching, that's what it was. You'd go around and you'd have this audience that kind of knew all the stories. They knew all the tenets of the faith. They knew about God. They knew about the Son. They knew about church. They knew about all this stuff. And he had to go there and rouse them all up. And they'd all go in the audience. Oh, yeah, I do. I know. I know that, I know that this book that's on my shelf at home, I know that's got the truth in it. I know, I know that God's good. I know I've got to be made right with him. I know that Jesus is the way to do that. I know that church helps me do all this. Man, I know all this. And this is, this is, the, this is the culture, sort of 17th, 18th into the 19th century. What happens, you great historians will tell me, at this time. So this is, I mean, that's a broad brush history of Christianity, but it might be helpful for us to think about it. What happens in 17th, 18th century is we reflect on the great thinkers of the 16th and 17th century, and we are enlightened, aren't we? Newton notices that, is it Newton? Newton notices that the apples fall down. Darwin stares at the animals and notices changes in the animals, and Descartes is in France, people watching, and many other great thinkers at the same time. And for the first time in our history, or more than ever in our history, humans move to reason, investigation, and freedom of thought over faith, tradition, and superstition. We think to ourselves, human life can be improved not only by the gods that we know and by religion and things like that, but human life can be improved through education and reason and scratching your heads. The universe, when we think about it as a machine, can be formulately, can be formulately improved. This is what, this is what happened. This was the, these were the circumstances throughout the 17th and 18th century. And this is what, this is what happened to the tenets of the faith. God... All of a sudden, people say about God, well, we can't prove him anymore. So God is dismissed, um, belittled. Jesus, we can't believe that miracles uh, can happen. So his credentials slip away a little bit, and those two characters uh, separate from each other. We dismiss the Bible because in the Enlightenment state, we... We don't accept any kind of authority like that. It's, you know, throughout the 18, we, we, still, we still talk like this now. No, you can't talk to me like that. Who are you to talk to me like that? That's what we think about the Bible, so we dismiss that. And we dismiss church as well because church holds all these values up. So all of a sudden, what happens, and this is the general sweep of national thinking, is all these things, these tenets of the faith, are undermined. But not only are they undermined, they're dispersed. Do you see that? They're separated. That's how I find people today when I talk to them. It's really, really interesting that we've had this sledgehammer of the Enlightenment. We've thought about it. We've reasoned it out. And yet, the consequences, God, God and Jesus and the church and the Bible and spirit, they're all still around. We're not allowed to pull them together anymore. And they've been undermined a little bit. But they all still exist in their separate corners. That's how people function. Now, a lot of the time, the, there are people that have dismissed God altogether. There are people that have dismissed Jesus altogether. Generally speaking, people have an idea of these facets, but they hold them all separately. So the idea remains of God 
as we keep him as a lucky charm, someone to go to when we're, when we're kind of desperate. We sort of go to him in those moments. Jesus, we keep for Christmas. And we hold on to his teachings. We go, yeah, that's really wise. But those two things don't come together. We've got God over here, like a child that's drawn a son in their picture, separate from everything, kind of doesn't make sense. But we keep God over there for comfort. We have Jesus, who we say, yeah, we'll keep him uh, for his wisdom. The spirit, we st- you know, broadly speaking, people still like to talk about spirituality, don't they? We still, we're still kind of a spiritual people. We keep the Bible in the corner of our house, kind of nostalgic, bit of wisdom in there. We'll go there every now and again. And the church still exists, you know, broadly speaking, people are happy for it to exist as kind of a community place. That's how we see it. It's good that it's there. People can get married there. People can celebrate Easter there and Christmas there. And it's good that people come together. And all these things exist, but they're all diminished and they're all separated. And people's journey of faith, and there might be a better way to illustrate than this, but this is the way that I've got. People's journey of faith, their spiritual journey, you might talk about it like that, the way that they cope with life as they go through it, becomes a little bit of a pick and mix. Do you know what I mean, pick and mix? That's the, is that a relevant enough? People still do pick and mix. The pick and mix is still up at the cinema, isn't it? You know when you go to the pick and mix, you go there and you think, what, what am I going to have? You go in, you look at it, you go, cola bottles. Yep, I'm going to go cola bottles. Everyone likes cola bottles. Flying saucers. They're a bit of a risk, flying saucers. You can't even remember if you like them or not, but we'll throw a few flying saucers in. Licorice, all sorts. I'll put one in. I can't really remember if I like them. Sours. When you get the sours, you're in a mood for a sour, aren't you? Then you have a couple of sours, and you're like, man, I don't really like sours. Christianity, spiritual journey, no, not Christianity, the spiritual journey, our walk of faith becomes a bit of a pick and mix for people. They can kind of go, all right, yeah, so I'm desperate. I'll chance my arm on God. I'll go back there. I'm a bit lost. Let me look at what that book says again. But for a lot of people, they don't put, the story together. You don't have, you've got God over here, someone you turn to every now and again desperately. You've got the church at Christmas, nice bunch of people. You've got God's word as well, helpful every now and again. And these things are all disparate. They're all separated out. It becomes a pick and mix affair. Here's the thing. One of the things that Paul says, and maybe, maybe, you, don't, maybe you don't see the picture like that. Maybe you want to challenge me afterwards on that. But as I, as I talk to my neighbors, dad's on the school run, all that sort of thing. I see little bits of this story everywhere, but all disparate. Little bits here and there. Paul says, in a couple of his letters, he says, oh, that's, that's great, but that storyline, man, that's not going to get you anywhere. Here's, here's some of his words in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like 17, 18, 19, condensed. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We are all people, So, sorry, this is not Colossians, this is just a, a Corinthians reference. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We are all people, most, we of all people are to be pitied. If, if, if what he's saying is if, if Jesus is not miraculous, if he's not God, if the word is not true, this is a waste of time. That's what he's saying. Saying don't get into, he's kind of saying, and this is how I read it anyway, with my liberal views, he's kind of saying, if you don't really get this, then go to Ibiza, club till you drop, you know, embrace everything that life has got, because if this is not true, then you can drop it. Drop it all. He kind of says, you need something 
that will really save you. The wisdom of Jesus, wise though it is on its own, it's not going to save you. God, like a comfort blanket every now and again, it's not going to save you. Paul says to us, it's not that kind of a deal. That's what he writes to the people of Colossae about. This is what this little segment is about. It's not that kind of a deal. You can't just grab a little bit of the Almighty God every now and again. It's just not that kind of a deal. So let's zone in on the text. Let's pull apart this beautiful, probably a poem that the apostles and early Christians used to sing. And I've got three points as we go through it. First one, when you get Jesus, you get God. When you get him, you get God. The text says the sun is the image of the invisible God. So there's a sense in which, which you literally get God. When you see Jesus in the Bible stories, walking about, living his life, that is God. The word in the Greek is icon. It's not, it would be an error to say he's similar to God. What he's saying is, this is God. So Tom Wright had an illustration. He said, it's like the idea that you're in a room and God is in the room next door and there's a mirror between the two rooms and you can see God in the mirror. He said, it's like that. God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in, in him. This is what this message is saying. This built, he's saying, you can't, have, you can't have a little bit of this guy. You just cannot dabble here. This is not a dabbleable subject. If you're going to dabble, you've got it all here. And what happens when you dabble? As Jesus becomes the, as Jesus represents the image of God, we, as, as Jesus lives out his life, we see the image of God. So God throughout the story of the Old Testament, and I think for a lot of us now, living out our lives, is, can be at times this distant generic character in our lives. Don't know if you describe God like that. Like sometimes God feels like that to you. You'll say, yeah, he's all powerful and he's really good. You'll say things like that. Yeah, I know that about God. What happens, what Paul's saying here is we get to, we get to see him. It's a bit like I was at a, a 60th birthday party the other week and it was one of those do's where where you've seen people you've not seen for a few years, and as they look at me, they're kind of like, they ask about my kids, but they've not seen my kids for 10 years, and I tried to describe my kids, and in a pathetic, blokey kind of way, I'm like, oh yeah, uh, this big girl, a lot of fun, and I'm just these horrific general uh, descriptions of my wonderful kids, and then Kira came belting in, and for those of you who know Kira, and she said, it's unicorn day today, I've declared it, we're gonna celebrate, here's a Ferrero Rocher, and then I went to the guy, my kids are like that, they're like that. And it was like, as God reveals himself through the Bible, I think it's a bit like that. When we look at Jesus, it's a little bit like that. It's, it's his image, it's him. He's there in a visceral sense. This unknown God that you talk generically about that seems a bit distant, all of a sudden becomes incredibly real and present. So we have stories, you know, as you look at the Gospels through this light, it becomes an amazing, awesome picture. Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples, fully God, storm brews up on this sea, he falls asleep, brilliant, he falls asleep, 
in the bottom of the boat, and the storm's going crazy, and he, the disciples come in all scared, wake him up, and he gets out, and he's, it's brilliant, he's annoyed with the weather. He's like, he rebukes it. And you go, man, that's power. Yeah, that's God, isn't it? He feeds 5,000 people. He has this day out, and increasing numbers of people follow him. And they, they get towards the end of the day, they realize they've not eaten, and everybody panics. And Jesus, <clears throat> out of nowhere, magically supplies enough food for the day. And you look at this man, Jesus, and you see God, and you say, man, yes. He's able to provide. But there's more to him than that. You watch him, watch him up close, and he stops for the sick and the leprous. God stops for the lick and the lick, sick and the leprous. It's easy for you to say. He dines, he dines with the baddies all the time. Parties with the baddies. This is God. He defends the adulterous. It's one of the most amazing, whatever concept you have of Christianity, you need to go away and read about the occasion where Jesus is, is teaching in this square and is brought before him, this woman caught in the act of adultery. Can you imagine? The Bible's really explicit, caught in the act of adultery. Some, the, these religious leaders drag this woman towards Jesus to be to be condemned, to be stoned. And they're, you know, all the blokes are there, all the Pharisees with their stones. They're ready. You know, they're ready to chuck them and they're ready to condemn this woman. And Jesus puts his hand over her and he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. This is, this is God. Every, the most religious dude that's there, the guy that knows his Bible the best, the worst sinner, everybody's leveled. Everybody has to go away home and think about their lives again. This is God. He cares for everybody. will judge perfectly in his last hours, and think about this if you're, if you're struggling with the concept of God or you think of him as this authoritarian figure who lords it over people. In his last hours on earth, knowing that uh, death is in front of him, his disciples are having a barney about who's the best, which one, of, which one of them's the greatest, this pathetic argument, and Jesus stoops and washes their feet. And the Bible says this is God running in. Look at him. Make your assessment on him. And this picture grows as we read the Gospels, as we see the image of God born out in the person of Jesus Christ. I think we get to trust God. And we get to increasingly see that you can't separate these characters up. You can't separate God and Jesus and the Spirit. You can't dismiss them. And, and as, you, as you learn more about Jesus, you realize that you can trust God more. That's the first thing. When you get Jesus... You get God. These are quite grand statements I'm going to make, so you might want to speak to me afterwards. When you get Jesus, this is the second one, you get the whole universe. I think you probably get sued for making claims like that. This, you know, eventually somebody's going to pull me up when they hear my sermons and go, you can't say things like that anymore. Well, in here I do. When you get Jesus, you get God. When you get Jesus, you get the whole universe. Look what it says in the text. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I don't know who you th think Jesus is. I don't know what your thoughts have been on him up to this point. See what it says about him there in that text. 
the best, the best theologians in Christchurch, the best theology is happening in the room behind me right now, believe it or not. The best, the best theology. So let me just say it out loud, we sing some beautiful theological hymns. They're just like, oh, they just blow my soul. And because he's not in the room, I can say we're very blessed to have a brilliant pastor in Paul. I think he's gone outside. Just soak up every word uh, that he throws at you. We are truly blessed to, to come under his ministry. It's incredible. But the best theology is happening in that room next door. And I'll give you an example of it. Every time, and if you've taught Sunday school class kids, you'll know this, is, there's about five kids, and it happens particularly at a certain age. They've got one answer ready, absolutely ready for you. And maybe, if, maybe you're thinking, I know, I know what this answer is. And it's brilliant. And it helps to have sweets. If I've got sweets, then this answer's definitely coming. But I could be asking anything, and I can see them ready to put their hand up, and they say, Jesus. Like, and there's been times when I've been trying to get them to think about fear. How would you feel if a volcano erupted? The hands up at the back already, and I'm scared, I'm scared to point over at these kids because I know it's going to be Jesus. And it's really hard because they are right. What does the story about the big fish and the man that gets trapped inside it get us to think about, kids? What does that get us to think about? Jesus. Yes, okay, Jesus. That's the be- and I'm telling you, the best theology Because why? Because ultimately they're right. Because this whole story is about him and pointing to him. Look at what it says in the text. It says everything. So so often I'm in that spot and I think I want to correct you. I want to tell you where I'm heading because I've got a better way. Eventually we'll get to Jesus, but let me have me moment. Let me just teach you something. But actually you're right. It's about Jesus. Look what it says in the text. Earth... um, the firstborn over all creation. So what does that tell us? Now, I don't know if you're a new earth or an old earth. Think it doesn't really matter. If it's thousands of years, fine. If it's millions of years, what the Bible's saying is Jesus was there. Jesus pre-existed that. Whatever, I don't know what your views on heaven are. Maybe you don't give it much thought. Whatever your views on heaven, how beautiful this grand design that's prepared for us, Jesus thought of that. Jesus organized it and planned it. Pre-exists it at the start, designing it at the end, holding it together in the middle. Everything, everything that exists is created by him, will be pulled together by him, and manages to survive through him. So even... Even the snack that's in your handbag or your pocket now that you've put in there to get you through my sermon, little sugar kick halfway through to get you through, and you think, only I know about this sugar kick. This is for my gratification. This is to keep me awake, to get engaged with Ash as he draws towards the end of his sermon. I've got it there. It's a sweet. Nobody knows about it. God knows about it. It's God's idea. God dreamt it up, and it's for his glory. Really? Yes, it's for his glory. The beautifully pruned hedge that you've got in your back garden that you've put in from seed that you've watched it grow you've gone out planted it you've sculpted it into something quite fabulous you've noticed that this robin comes there you've not noticed it you've 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 put food there for it so you've got this robin that comes and nests in this beautiful tree in your back garden that you've sculpted and you can enjoy as the sun sets over your back garden it's all kind of your work it's not any of your work god dreamt that up god birthed that God knew that you'd love it. God keeps it together. And 
It's not even really about you. It's about him and his glory. The kingdom of Brunei, the office of the mayor of Pontefract, the smell of coffee in the morning, the invention of the washing machine, whatever it is you want to think up. A nice woolly jumper, good pair of socks, dental practices, whatever, whatever you want to think up. Jesus is the person behind it. He holds it together and it is ultimately for his glory. One of the questions we ask in our world, one of the things we get to think about when we think about Jesus, particularly if we're new to him, you're like, can he really save me? What would him saving me look like? What would it be like if he was to save me? If Jesus saves you, the meek and mild baby, the person at the beginning of creation that pulls it all together at the end of times. It, it's everything. It reshapes how you look, how you think about, how you cope with, how you deal with everything. It's not just, here's your ticket for heaven. Well done. I'll see you in 80 years. It's let me show you how the universe ticks, how it's here to bring me glory, how everything works. Let me reveal that to you and let me give you along the way, even in a world that is incredibly hard, loaded with pain, let me give you peace because you know this. That's what the gospel is. When you get Jesus, you get everything. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him, and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. See that? See what the text is saying? There's a few bits we've missed off and we've not gone into, but the spirit is connected to the son. He's rooted in the father. He's the head of the church. We might think we're a disparate bunch. We've got, we've got no loyalties to anybody. We are a part of this storyline in Christ. It all intermingles. This is not a storyline that you can look at and go, I like, I, like, I like coming along and I like, I like dipping my toe in with Jesus. It's just not that kind of a deal. If you know him, he's not just the Christmas baby. He is in and amongst everything. Now here's the thing, final one. When you get Jesus, if you get Jesus, when you get Jesus, you get devotions. One of the biggest missells that we do as Christians, that I do as Christians, and I'll do it the odd sermon and somebody should reprimand me afterwards, and, and they do, is we make out that it's about how hard you can work and how good you are. One of the gravest mistakes that we've made, and we've made it for thousands of years, we do it over and over again. So people listening to the sermon go, I just don't have strength for this faith. See what it says in verse 19. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things, himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is what getting Jesus is. Getting Jesus is he's coming to the point of understanding where you can see that he's all this all this that we've just said, he's in everything, he's before everything, he's about everything. When you, when you understand that he's that, he's everything, 
And yet he looks at an idiot like me and an idiot like you, and he's willing to go to the cross and sacrifice everything. When you think about it like that, you realize that this is not something that you work at, although we do work at it. You realize this is something that changes in your inner core. When you know, when you get to the point, if you can get to the point where you look at Jesus and you say, yeah, he's all those things, and he abandoned all those things for me. You don't get Jesus by being good and working at it. You get Jesus when you realize you're a scallywag who had their heart stolen by a God who left everything because he loved them. This is the beginning of the church in Colossae. And this is the beginning of Christianity. Seeing Jesus for who he is.